Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Alright, welcome to the final episode of Lost in Science for 2021. And as the year comes to a close, you're probably thinking, like me, what was that all about? Yes, 2021 turned out to be, uh, I don't know, disappointingly similar to 2020. Um, For us, we continued to record our show remotely, which, look, honestly, we found that has worked quite well for us. I hope it's worked quite well for you. I hope our science has helped get you through what has been another year um, of disruption to our normal lives. Um, look, we'll probably give you a bit of a full wrap-up of everything we've done um, when we get into the new year, after we've had a quick holiday break. But I thought for now I would give you um, a brief look back at some of my highlights for the past year. Uh, look, as in 2020, we covered a lot of COVID stories. We we talked about vaccines, we talked about their risks and why the benefits vastly outweigh those risks. Cannot emphasise that enough. Do get vaccinated. We also talked about COVID tests, uh, some of the technology developed here in Australia. We talked about, of course, the new variants emerging and how could you avoid looking at some of the conspiracy theories around COVID, around vaccines, around the origins of it. There was a lot of that stuff going on. Um, Speaking of that, uh, Stu had a talk to epidemiologist Gideon Meyerowitz-Katz about the drug you might have heard about, Ivermectin, the controversial supposed COVID treatment. How some of the research behind it, though, promoting its use, turned out to be surprisingly dodgy. And dare we say, there was quite a bit of fraud identified. Um, That was one of our many fascinating interviews we had on the show this year. We also had talks to um, materials chemist Nicholas Kirkwood, who um, was one of the people who developed the the technology for PCR tests for COVID that we talked about. Um, We talked to oceanographer Christina Schallenberg about how smoke from the Black Summer bushfires led to an algal bloom bigger than Australia. Ah, it's in the ocean, of course. Valerie Caron, we spoke to from the CSIRO about her research on dung beetles, including the native dung beetles that feed on marsupial poo, and how they're searching for beetles from overseas to tackle the dung of introduced species. We also spoke to Crystal Costaglu from Deakin University about her research into the southern mass lapwings and their strange pre-hatching behaviour, where the chicks, before they hatch from their eggs, actually can communicate with their parents. Um, we looked at the mouse plague in Australia and the, um, some of the harmful rodenticides being considered, uh, the ecological risk of them, and ornithologist Maggie Watson, who gave us some safer options. There was biologist Christopher O'Brien, who spoke about calculating the carbon emissions that feral pigs cause by disturbing the soil. There was researcher Tom Fairman, who spoke about the huge effort to save mountain ash forests by reseeding thousands of hectares after the Black Summer bushfires. Uh, microbiologist Peter Timms from the University of Sunshine Coast told us about clinical trials of a vaccine for chlamydia, which threatens Australia's already vulnerable koala populations. And we spoke to friend of the show, Lyndon Ashcroft, about what was going on at the COP26 conference on climate change in Glasgow. 
Now, our most popular show for the year, at least judged by, um, I guess, views and listens and downloads, was our Inverted Double Creature feature featuring giant centipedes from Phillip Island. Not the Phillip Island, Victoria, by the way. Um, but yeah, giant centipedes that stalk and eat birds. Very creepy, very disturbing. Uh, and Stu, in the same episode, talked about a very domestic spider that we're all pretty familiar with, the daddy long legs, and some new research that investigated the genes that gave them their long legs. Yes, we love our creature features here at Lost in Science. So today I thought I might cover something similar with a, repeating a couple of stories that you might have missed the first time around. Claire gives us a story of the incredible mimicry powers of birds, including some recently unearthed audio of a musk duck, Busyura labata, that um, was swearing, let's put it that way, uh, has to be heard to believe, to be believed. And Stu explains how, contrary to some of the colonial assumptions we may have had, songbirds actually evolved in Australia and spread throughout the world. And we know this because we can examine their taste buds. Yes, science is amazing. Birds are amazing. And they are going to bring us, as always, faithfully to the end of the year. So on with the show. comes to the imitation game birds are pretty high up there on the first group of animals that you think of of course close to home you might think of the incredible talent of the superb lyre bird and how each winter during mating season the males create a mound and bust out the greatest hits of the forest floor i mean it's pretty incredible hearing them imitate any bird that you know of for miles around, they, they, they do it with such stunning accuracy, don't they? How do you know they're imitating other birds and not just the other birds there? Have you heard one before? No, I haven't. It, 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 so, it, it's, it sounds like a loop. Like it just goes from bird to bird. You've got your black cockatoo, you've got your wattle bird, you've got your whip bird, you've got your grey fantail, and it just rotates again and again. And it's actually a lot louder than those birds are. Right. So, um, yeah, t- the telltale signs. And also they imitate other things. They, they've, been, they've been known to lure people away from their from their cottages in early settled early settler times by making the sound of axes, which people would go off and investigate <laughs> the sound of the axe coming from the forest. And they've even done things like chainsaws. They yeah. do they do car alarms. <laughs> they'll yeah, just they'll pick totally. up on any any sound really. They totally do. And I don't know, Stu, have you heard um, this week in Sydney's Taronga Zoo, their resident lyrebird named um, Echo took it one step further and has now perfectly mimicked the wails of a crying baby. Wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible and it's got to, it's got to be pretty triggering for um the new parents out there. Um shall shall, shall I play it for you? Oh sure, yeah, sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
by Chris's face, I can tell that he's probably ready um, for me to stop the wailing I, baby that isn't his baby. I don't right think now. I don't think that baby likes the zoo. <laughs> I, mean, I thought the zoo was supposed to be a happy place. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty spot on imitation, um, and they do it very very well. It's but it's not just lyrebirds who make vocal imitations. Obviously, parrots are incredibly good at mimicry. Um, but what what a, what about a duck? Have you ever heard a duck? imitating vocalizations, mimicking humans or anything else? I mean, I just normally hear them quack. Oh, look, only only in cartoons, let's be honest. There's a couple of famous cartoon ducks who do a pretty good job of of speaking, but, um, you know, your average waddling paddlefoot duck, probably not so much. Probably not. Only in that uh, nature documentary of Looney Tunes do we hear ducks imitating human Human voices. Um, well, this week the first evidence has been pub- has been published that shows a species of duck mimicking other sounds. Um, now there are many reasons to get excited about this. Uh, number one, it's an Australian duck. It's called the Australian musk duck, which is um, a Latin name Bizzura <laughs> labata. Um, and that's the duck that's made this vocalization. Well, you don't often get the um, you don't often get the Latin name easier to say than the the common name. You're you having a bit of trouble with musk duck? I think it's a great tongue twister. Musk say duck. musk duck ten times fast. <laughs> that's right. Um, this the second reason to get excited about uh, this duck mimicking is that the vocalization that the musk duck makes contains a truly Australian swear word. So it's just perfect. It's just the best. Shall we take a listen? Sure. So, what's it it saying there exactly? People who may not have quite caught that. Well, I I heard and um, what the researchers are suggesting that it's saying is you bloody fool you bloody fool <laughs> and this is published in a legitimate scientific journal is this it? is published in a legitimate scientific journal um it is called the philosophical transactions of the royal society b <laughs> right okay vocal limitations and production learning by australian musk ducks Biziura lobata there it is. Um, so there are actually two sounds there that you heard. There was um, first, you know, was you bloody fool. Um, and uh, the second one was um, a door slamming or a door knocking. Oh, so that noise was a duck. It wasn't like 
that an actual door. It was that was a duck. That was not an actual door. That was a duck making the sound, mimicking the sound of a door. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, there you have it. The first known case of a duck mimicking a sound. So when did this ha- when did this happen? Like, yeah. When so did this duck. It actually took place around thirty years ago, um, oh. and the researchers have. Um, just found the audio files. They were recorded on a um, on a Sony Walkman. Actually, just <laughs> great little tidbit for you. Um, it was made of a hand reared musk duck, uh, so it it it, it wasn't a um, totally wild musk duck. Uh, and the name of the musk duck was Ripper, and this Ooh. happened in Tidbinbilla Nature Reserve, which is just southwest of Canberra. So you know. As Aussie as you get in the Australian capital, saying so you're bloody fool. People who are familiar, what is a what is a musk duck? Is it like a regular duck, or is it like a special duck? Or yeah, well, it's a swearing duck. Um, uh-huh, I think yeah, you yeah, will, yeah. you will realise that. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's a really good question. Musk ducks are um, they are weird and they are wonderful in their own right. Before we realise that they're also um, great at mimicking swears. Um, they're, they're sort of heavy in the body. They've got short wings. They've got stumpy little legs and they spend very little time flying or even, um, being able to support themselves on land. Their, their legs are so stumpy. So they end up spending a lot of time in the water. Uh, one other interesting feature of the musk duck is that the males are a lot bigger than the females. So they're, they're like three times as big. So and the other thing you'll notice about them if you look them up on the internet is the adult males have this like quite large pendulum like lobe that hangs below their bill and it makes them look not like any other duck. They look pretty weird, pretty unusual. Um, and the reason that they're called musk ducks, well, um, dominant males give off a pungent musky odor, um, from none, no other place than their butts. Uh, so yeah, so you can, you can probably, you can probably guess that there's a fair bit, you know, with this um, what we call sexual dimorphism, with a male and a female being so, um, you know, so different in size, uh, there's a fair bit of sexual selection that goes on with musk ducks. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it, it's actually pretty, pretty hectic. The, the male display that scientists have described of musk ducks and they've described it in an impressive amount of detail. In fact, um, in musk ducks, they've described three levels of male aggressive display. And these levels sort of increase in intensity. So the first level, and just imagine like level one of your, you know, Mortal Kombat uh, musk duck fighter can do a paddle kick. Level two, with a bit more intensity, is the plonk kick. <laughs> And then the third level of intensity, which is the most intense, is the whistle kick. Da, 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 choose your fighter. Um, and then and then fourth level, they swear at you. Then, <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly, um, you know, uh, with, with the whistle kick, uh, that's the only one where the musk duck actually combines um, a kicking motion with um, with a vocalization. And Ripper, you know, the musk duck in question that um, likes to swear, he did his utterations of you bloody fool and the um, door slam noise. He accompanied it with the whistle kick posture. So he's combining. He is. He's got a new move, basically. He's got a new move. 
Yeah, which really suggests that the mimicry is somehow related to visual displays and potentially even mate selection. Um, Now, I could go on all night about what this means also from an evolutionary perspective um, in terms of, you know, how vocalisations and mimicry um, evolves because, you know, ducks and parrots, they're not exactly the closest of relatives. There's at least 90 million years of of evolution separating them. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of questions that this this brings up in terms of what it means for how vocal imitation um, evolved. Uh, But I will leave that for another time and another story, Um, you know, so long as the take home tonight is that this little ripper of a duck ain't no one's bloody fool. All right. Well, you think it's, um, you think it's swearing is scary. Why don't you see the bill? (laughs) (laughs) Good one. Bloody fool. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. One of the criticisms people make of science is that its origins are largely European, and this Eurocentric worldview has affected the perception of the world by scientists who are seeking to study the world. Uh, And this is kind of a reasonable assertion to make. The Enlightenment beginning in the 17th century was based around Europe, and many of the protocols of science were laid down during that time. And as colonialism of European powers spread through the world, science often went along, and the interpretation of nature through a European lens is very easy to see in science of the time, especially the way things were named. They were named after things people knew. And, you know, people tend to write about what they know. And as European-trained botanists and zoologists came in contact with organisms they'd not seen before, they tried to link them to species they did know. Uh, In many cases, the relationships to known plants and animals were assumed rather than tested Uh, And the evolutionary theories applied to them were based on what was labelled first more than anything else. So they'd they'd start with an animal they knew or a plant they knew in Europe and they'd base the evolutionary relationship on that first plant that they'd found or that they knew about. Now, in the late 20th century, new tools became available which allowed science to look not only at the shape of living organisms, but at the DNA that builds living organisms. And a much more accurate picture of evolution began to replace that Eurocentric biology of earlier centuries. Genetic analysis of organisms allowed biologists to directly measure how closely related different organisms were. And by looking at the presence of specific genes in these organisms, even they could evaluate how they had moved into new areas and how they spread out around the world. So, for example, the songbirds. Do we know what songbirds are? They're like small things that sing a song, aren't they? Well... They fly. They're big birds. They, they also fly. Yeah, they're called passerine birds. Ooh. I believe. That is, that is absolutely true. So the songbirds are a group of around 5,000 species of birds. They're found throughout the world, and as the name suggests, they have the ability in many species of producing elaborate songs. 
So a lot of songs, you know, this is the difference between bird songs and bird calls. Bird calls are generally very repetitive, mm. whereas bird song is quite elaborate and, you know, it's territorial and mating benefits and all these other things. Can you give an example of a songbird, Stu? Oh, a robin is yeah. you know, probably one of the best known ones, and that that's given its name to lots of other birds which kind of look like robins around the world as well but that's probably you know a, a good example um so the songbirds or passeriformes as they are you know uh, zoologically known or ornithologically known probably is a better word to use well known in other parts of the world and when europeans arrived in australia they related the local species back to those songbirds that they already knew which is why we've got you know finches and robins Mm. and all these familiar names from from europe that they brought along with them and the assumption that they made was that the songbirds had colonized australia after evolving in the northern hemisphere total assumption total assumption there there was no reason to assume that was what happened but they were doing the same thing so they kind of went hey the birds probably beat us to the punch or the flap or the peck i don't know what what it would be with birds um (laughs) And you can see that in the names that they've given. I mean, the magpie that we've got here is absolutely nothing like the magpie of yeah. Europe, but it's got the name because that they went, hey, that kind of looks like a magpie. It's black and white. Yeah, uh, which is kind of what magpie means. Um, it's well established, as we know, that birds are descended from a group of carnivorous dinosaurs, but many of the songbirds are omnivorous, and some feed predominantly on nectar and other sweet foods. So a lot of carnivorous animals are not able to sense sweet flavours. So some researchers were wondering why these birds suddenly switch to sweet foods and how could they figure out what are the sweet foods if they can't taste it. But obviously they could taste sweet foods. And this is a question which was raised, how did they evolve this ability to taste sweet things? That's right, because, yeah, we, I think we talked about this before, how, yeah, carnivorous animals, some of them can't taste. So, like, cats, for instance, don't have, like, the taste buds for sweet things because they don't eat sweet food. They don't seek the nutrition from sweet things. They eat meat, and so they don't need to taste sugary things. Yeah, and there's no benefit to them for tasting sweet things, so why do they do it? But in the birds, obviously a lot of birds do eat a lot of sweet foods, and at some point, they must have developed this ability because other birds don't eat sweet foods. A lot of them are still carnivorous, mm. like, our, like our magpie, for example. Um, so uh, by analysing the genes responsible for taste, a group of researchers led by Dr. Maud Baldwin of the Max Planck Institute in Germany discovered a single gene change in taste receptors was how they could start to taste the sugar in certain foods. A, a single, just just one single gene change or one yeah. single... one single change of uh, gene in the receptor for taste. So wow. birds, like humans, have a set of umami taste receptors <laughs> which <laughs> respond to meaty flavours. That's what they taste. And that's, you know, when you eat wow. meat or mushrooms yeah. or... Miso parmesan cheese, parmesan oh. cheese, mm. all trigger these umami receptors, and the birds have these as well. But a single change, a single gene change in that receptor, makes it responsive to sugars 
and that is what allows the birds to taste sweet things. Also, their sweet receptor evolved from a umami receptor. Exactly, and just oh, from a, just from a right. single change in that in that receptor. And was it that way around, or was it the other way around? No, the umami was there first because carnivores all carnivores. Can taste umami. Oh, of course, yeah. it was. It was from the tiny dinosaurs. Yeah, from the tiny saws. Um, and they so then they then they tracked the presence of these genes in songbird populations around the world and found that sweet toothed birds. Well, not really sweet toothed, the sweet beaked birds <laughs> sweet beaked evolved bird. evolved very early in Australia and then spread throughout the world. So the human colonizers got it the wrong way around. It was the sugar loving songbirds that colonized the rest of the world. Wow. Rather than moving to Australia from somewhere else. And it makes a lot of sense that these sugar seekers would move into other areas with less competition because no other birds would have been seeking out the sweet fruits and the nectar-laden flowers before them because they would fly somewhere new and go, hey, no competition. What a great place to live. But hang on, when did they when did they spread out then? Oh, hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago from Australia. The reason I ask is because the, um, you know, with flowers and stuff, you have a lot of, like, evolution alongside the pollinators. So, you know, don't they mm. as evolved to attract things like birds to pollinate them. So they, they may they may have already had pollinators and potentially like the birds insects. displaced those pollinators ah. as they spread out. Um, but also a lot of a lot of flowers don't have uh, very specific pollinators. They don't really care who who spreads their pollen around as long as it happens. Look, I think um, personally I've got to say I I tend to prefer the umami flavors um, and Having looked into it, our sweet receptors are functionally very close to the umami and the bitter taste receptors in humans. So uh, we, we, we have potentially had similar changes at some distant point in our evolutionary history. But uh, if, I, if I had to choose between all the flavours, I think I would leave the sweets for the birds. That's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get... Lost in Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.